about to depart from the disciples. He, he did, as you remember, he talked to them for a long time. Um, and one of the things that he told them was that you're not going to, you're not going to be coming with me now, but uh, later on you will in the meantime. Uh, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, um, that you have love for one another. And um, just wanted to leave you with that. Um, it was um, it was that the word for the godly love that he used and um, that he had shown them over the last few years. So they knew what he was talking about when he said, they will know you're my disciples. I showed you how to love like God does. If you have your Bibles now, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 7. John chapter 7. If you remember, a little while ago, we began our uh, our march through the Gospel of John and uh, ended up putting that on pause. I'd like to continue it. I'd like to get us marching forward through the Gospel um, Again, pursuing the counsel of God in all of this. As you turn to John, if you are not already and are able, you could go ahead and stand so that we can honor the reading of God's word. The Gospel of John, chapter 7. We'll read through verses 1 through 24. It's a little bit of reading, but bear with me. John chapter 7. God's word says, After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee, since he did not want to travel in Judea, because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, so your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you because it, the world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. After his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly, the Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, Where is he? And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. Some were saying, He's a good man. Others were saying, No. On the contrary, he's deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. When the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, How is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? Jesus answered them, My teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who is trying to kill you? I performed one work, and you are all amazed, Jesus answered. This is why Moses has given you circumcision, not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, Judge according to righteous judgment. You can be seated. This is God's word to us. You have to give me at moments. I'm a little under the weather. I love my children. I give them love, affection, and warmth, and they repay me with the cold, as is the way. <clears throat> so if I pause, uh, just bear with me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you have written down your will right before us. You've written it, you've preserved it, you've inspired it, and you still speak through it. 
This morning, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us now through your word. Not through any human authority, not from myself, not from our imaginations, but from your word. Your word which has power and authority and the ability to change hearts and minds. Lord, may we, <coughs> excuse me, may we continue after and pursue life in your name as you revealed it in your word. Be with us now. We ask it in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Earlier this week, I was uh, recently at a grocery store picking up some things, and I was waiting at the checkout line. And I recently saw a magazine with a headline from uh, Life Magazine which said, 100 people who changed the world. And among the pictures that were on the cover, many people were on there, Mother Teresa, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, um, many notable figures from history. Among those was an older um, Renaissance-like portrait of Jesus, of Christ. And it occurred to me, how does the world view Christ? Obviously, is from the cover of Time magazine as a major influence in world history and world events. But it also got me thinking, who does the world judge him to be? We know who he is historically, but who is he actually? Who has he claimed to be? Who has he revealed to be in Scripture? Our passage this morning, we're looking at John and what exactly he tells us about who Jesus is. The wrong responses to this revelation and who we must judge Jesus to be if we are to have life in his name. If you remember, we we didn't necessarily open with John. We went to the end. John reveals to us the purpose for his writing these down in the end of his, excuse me, the end of his gospel. He says, but these are written in John 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So there's the purpose for writing everything down. He's done many other things that aren't recorded, but what is recorded has the purpose of bringing about belief in our hearts about his identity, his messianic identity, who he is, not who we think he is, not who the world judges him to be, but who he actually is. And in that belief, from that stems life in his name. So we start with that. We've gone through chapters 1 through 6 so far in previous events. He's still revealing who he is, and people are still missing it. The the common Jewish folk are missing who he is entirely, and the Pharisees simply want to kill him because he's apparently blaspheming. Chapter 7 picks up on the heels of chapter 6 where Jesus has said, I am the bread of life, right? Whoever eats of my flesh and drinks my blood has life. And because of these things, he's lost many followers. We think a few here and there, but think of the multitudes, the the thousands he's fed. Think about that many vanishing overnight because of his teaching. This is where we pick up after he asked uh, his disciples uh, in verse 66, he says, you don't want to go away too. Peter responds, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So this is where we leave off, right? Around that time, that's the <clears throat> excuse me, the festival of Passover, right? That's the event taking place in chapter 6. John fast-forwards us about six months from Passover to this new festival, or the festival of shelters, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles as many names. So this is the timeline that John is deciding uh, to pick up for us. And we're introduced to a few things. We have the time, we have the place, and we have the circumstances surrounding what Jesus is going to do next. Look with me in uh, verses 1 through 5. Excuse me. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, so your disciples can see your works that you are doing. 
for no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. So John identifies the Feast of Booths, Festival of Shelters, as a significant area, or as a significant significant thing to mention. This festival holds quite a bit of significance, right? If John includes it, we ought to look at it ourselves. This festival coincided with the with the harvest, right? The ingathering of not grain, but in fact olives and grapes for wine, for oil and selling. It also has a significance. Why shelters? Well, at this time, this is a gathering of all Jews to Jerusalem, the capital city. And what they would do is set up tents all throughout the surrounding region, reenacting <clears throat> their wilderness wanderings. You remember Israel wandered in four, for 40 years in the wilderness after leaving Egypt. And what this does, it recalls a few things. They're wandering. They're not going into the promised land. But they're not starving. They're not dying. They're being provided for. God sends manna from heaven. Quail. He goes before them in a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. He's providing them shade during the day, warmth in the night, food, water from the rock when Moses strikes it. In all this wandering, although they're grumbling and although they're still rebellious at times, God still provides them and meets them mercifully where they are. Through the wanderings, God repeatedly reveals how glorious he is, merciful and powerful to provide in the most abundant ways, even though Israel still grumbles and judges that his provision is insufficient. So this is the context, right? This is what we're looking at. This is the time, the festival, and this is what we're preparing for. This is what the Jews have in their heads as they're preparing for this feast. The next thing I want you to focus on is Jesus' brothers. Yes, he did in fact have brothers, siblings, uh, who were younger than him, half-brothers. <clears throat> and it's significant because I, I have a younger sister by 10 years, uh, quite a bit of time. And we, you know, we get along very well. If I were to tell her something, she probably has no reason to not believe it. Uh, we have a good relationship there. Conversely, Jesus' brothers, who have pretty much grown up along with him, have seen his ministry almost firsthand, they know he's got crowds and followers and disciples, so they also know that he's lost a few. They know what happened six months earlier with his teaching and how quickly his following had vanished. If you focus on his words, <clears throat> or on their words, look, they say, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works and know that, see your works that you were doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. They don't seem to understand. In all fairness, they're probably looking out for their older brother, Jesus, who's an aspiring preacher. He's got a following, but he's taken a sudden hit to his reputation. And possibly what they would like to do is give him some tips, some advice. R.C. Sproul once said that uh, they have called him, uh, he's called them his self-appointed campaign managers, right? They're looking to soften the blow a little bit. Here's the problem. Their advice is not within his plan. He's got a purpose in this time. Look what he says. My time has not yet arrived, in verse 6, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. My time has not yet arrived. This is a constant theme. You look at the wedding in Cana in John chapter 2. His mother comes up to Jesus and says, there's no wine. He says, woman, why do you come to me? My time has not yet come. It is not yet right for me to perform the signs that will lead me to the cross. It's not yet time for me to be on display for the world to see so that the sins of the world might be forgiven. It's not yet my time. Friends, Jesus doesn't need career advice. I know at times he might seem distant and seem that his 
tactics for recognition don't fit our, our paradigms. Why would Jesus do this? Why am I going through this? His disciples felt that way as well. And many left. But a few stayed. For the reason that they believed in his identity. <clears throat> Conversely, these brothers didn't. They see him as a struggling preacher. They see him as someone who needs some help with his publicity. He doesn't seem to be the best at it. He needs some, some good PR. Friends, he doesn't need our opinions about how he can improve. <clears throat> he doesn't need any of our help. He's got a plan. And in fact, he is following God's plan to the letter. We can trust him to know what he's doing. As we move forward, or pardon me, one other thing. D.A. Carson, in commenting on this, makes this pretty clear. He says, this reveals not so much doubt in Jesus' miracle-working skills or his abilities as it does a fundamental misunderstanding of who he is. The people who were closest to him, his own family, completely missed his identity, along with many others. The religious leaders, those who study the law daily, who pour over the scriptures because they think they have life in them, they study them day in and day out, and they miss his identity. Their verdict about Jesus' identity must be right. Our, our verdict about Jesus' identity, who he is, has to be right. If we're wrong about who Jesus is in some way, our gospel simply falls short. If he is not the true Messiah who has come into the world to take away its sins and provide redemption, then we have no hope. We have to get Jesus right. Our judgment about his identity must be right if we are to have life in his name. If you move along with me, verse 8, go up to the festival yourselves, Jesus says. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said these things, he stayed in Galilee. <clears throat> Continuing to verse 13, after his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly. The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? There was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. Some are saying he's a good man. Others are saying no. On the contrary, he's deceiving the people. So nobody was talking about him publicly for fear of the Jews. A small thing to add in this passage. People have used this particular passage to misconstrue the Bible into saying something that it doesn't. We, we believe, I believe, that the Bible is God's inspired, infallible word. It is inerrant in all that it teaches inspired from God himself without error. They'll use this portion of uh, verse 9 through 10 to say that John got his facts wrong, so it can't be infallible. Because what has Jesus said? Go to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival. But what does he do in verse 10? He goes up to the festival. What's going on, John? Where's, where's the miscommunication? It's most likely a interpretive issue with the scriptures. Not that it's wrong, but there are different translations that say different things. In this particular verse, <clears throat> excuse me, other manuscripts that we've uncovered over the years add the word yet. This is a week-long festival, seven days of feasting, and then it culminates in a solemn assembly on the eighth day. So all throughout this time, Jesus simply says, I'm not going quite yet. My time has not yet come. It's not in the plan for me to go day one. So he hangs back and waits a few days until he comes up. So a, a reading that helps understand that passage would be, I'm not going up to this festival yet. Quite yet. So you can see there's no problem with your Bible. What you've got is true, accurate, reliable. There's some translation changes that occur, but your Bible is entirely reliable. 
someone comes up to you and says that it's not, and they point to this verse, I learned this in church, that's not the case. You can put that in your pocket for future reference. And again, we see that Jesus is operating on God's timeline, not on our own. One thing to keep in mind is we're introduced to a few characters up until this point. We've been introduced to Jesus' brothers, his family, his blood relations, so to speak, and they completely miss his identity because they're more concerned about his public image than they are about what he's actually teaching. We move along, now we're introduced to the Jews. And there's two ways you can look at it. The Jews being just the crowds, the everyday common folk of Israel, right? The citizens of the nation. And then you have the Jews who are the scribes, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious leaders, the elite of the day. John uses them interchangeably in that sense. He doesn't always distinguish the the common folk and the Jews. They're all the Jews. But the crowds, the crowds are the second character in the story. The crowds have an opportunity. They're weighing who he is. Look what they say. Some are saying, he's a good man. Others are saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. They're closer. They're weighing. There's something about him that is different than some ordinary preacher or rabbi traveling about the nation. Some say he's good. He's got good intentions. He's a good man. Others are still missing it. He's deceiving the people. Can't you see? He's putting a spell over your eyes. He's casting shadows over what we received from Moses. Speaking in murmurs and whispers about Jesus. But there's a contrast between genuine faith and unbelief. And still... Our character, the crowds, are in the area of unbelief. They also miss who Jesus is, who he's clearly claiming to be, and it flies right over their heads. He's just another rabbi. He's just another teacher. Maybe a good teacher. Maybe he's just deceiving them to get a following. But they've missed who he is. And in verse 13, still... Nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. We already get a sense that Jesus is not quite a welcome figure in Jerusalem among the people. He doesn't have a good reputation with the Pharisees or the Sadducees, or any of the religious elite for that matter. He's not well received. And again, this is the verdict of the commoners. He's either just a good man or he's a deceiver. This is where they've landed. But it's not where John wants us to land. John has a different aim in mind. We continue on in verses 14 through 19. When the festival was already half over, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, how is this man so learned? since he hasn't been trained. Jesus answered them, My teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? There's a lot packed into this verse, and there's some context that still needs to be driven home. If you remember back in chapter 5, Jesus comes around another feast, the Passover, and heals the layman by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. He says, rise, take up your bed, and walk. He does so, and he walks away. And the Jews come back to him and say, why are you doing this? You're insane. You're working on the Sabbath. But Jesus answers them, In fact, he is working, and God is also working. He's equating himself with God. He's already made himself equal to him, and this incites the desire to kill him. This sets everything in motion. The ball is rolling at this point. The cross is near. 
but it's set in motion now. Another thing to keep in mind is, you remember, uh, and I'm blanking on the passage at the moment, 12-year-old Jesus, he goes up for a pilgrimage to the temple, and he's teaching these teachers in the temple. He's grown in, in stature and wisdom. He's teaching them as if he's been to school all his life, and he's perplexing them because of all this. Well, he's come back and did it again. This time, much older, in <coughs> excuse me, in the middle of his ministry. And I never knew this before. I thought this was an odd thing to say. How is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? There's other translations that will put it this way that pretty much say this. How can this man even read? How does this man know his letters, let alone teach and maintain the discourse at this high a level with the Pharisees. How is he doing this? And he gives them the answer, my teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. He's not appealing to some other authority, rabbi such and such, as others do. Even though they study the law and they, they seek life in the law, he's not appealing to any human authority, human author. They assume he's just another simpleton who can barely read or write. And yet here he is teaching them and speaking to them as if he's got a doctorate, right? Our equivalent. It's because his teaching is from God himself. How profound is it that they seek to know God's will through, or appear to seek God's will through the scriptures, and yet here he is speaking it plainly. And it amazes them. I think it's safe to say that you can be so lost in simply reading the scriptures and knowing the Bible, keeping a repository of scriptures in your head for different occasions. And you could just see letters on paper and memorize it and yet completely miss the living nature of the word. It is God-breathed, inspired. It flows from the very nature of God when he speaks through the word, he still speaks. Just because you shut your Bible doesn't mean you shut the mouth of God. His words are still true. And John is pointing at an element of faith that is involved, that is needed to discern these things. Look what he says in verse 17. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. This is the kind of faith that Jesus is seeking. This is the faith that allows us to discern whether or not this teaching is of God or whether he's just trying to talk up a show and gain a following. Genuine faith allows us to glimpse and follow the will of God. We might not always see it clearly, this faith doesn't always mean we see the finish line in sight. Rather, we trust that God is leading us or gaining our steps. My teaching isn't mine, but it's from the one who sent me. And he's pointing out the reason why the Jews, the religious elite now, our next set of characters, are still missing. And why are they missing his identity? Because they've inwardly chosen not to do God's will. That is the difference between those who find life in the name of Christ and those who simply choose not to do his will. The difference between saving faith and self-condemnation is what Christ has revealed himself to be, who he has said he is. Peter got it in the previous chapter. You are the Holy One of God. You're the Messiah. They get it. But the contrast is his brothers, the crowds, the religious elite. Even the religious elite, the ones who pour over the scriptures day in and day out, they eat and breathe and live this 
and they can be so blind because of their own hypocrisy, their own hearts. So how do the Jews respond with this saying? Why are you trying to kill me? His accusation that they don't keep the law. The reason why they don't know whether or not his teaching is from God or himself. Look at verse 20. You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who is trying to kill you? I performed one work and you were all amazed, Jesus answered. This is why Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it came from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. In this section of the passage, Jesus highlights the peak of the issue, the crux of the matter, the root of their unbelief and their response. Their response to accusation of of hypocrisy, you're insane. You must be demon-possessed. You must have a demon about you. He's heard that before, hasn't he? In the other synoptics, he's been said to be conspiring with the prince of demons, with Beelzebub. Right? And he says, how, how, can demon, how can Satan cast out Satan? It doesn't make sense. It's simply an excuse to hide behind so that they don't have to admit their guilt. They say he's influenced by the dark powers. And in so doing, he's made an enemy of the Jews. But what's the secondary reason? There's more to it than just, oh, he healed a man. There's actual significance in why he did what he did and when he did it. Remember, the healing on the, at the pool of Bethesda was on the, on the Sabbath. No work is to be done on the Sabbath, according to the religious elite. You can't do any work. You can't take up your bedroll and walk because that's violating the law of Moses. Even more so, you can't heal because it's the Sabbath. This lame man has waited 38 years. He can wait one day more. They're missing the purpose for which Jesus was sent. And there's a teaching about circumcision that has swarmed the customs of the day. In that day, circumcision was seen as a perfecting rite, R-I-T-E, a perfecting ritual, one that in the process made one much more whole. On the eighth day after a male child is born or brought into the family, they are to be circumcised as a covenant sign that God established with Abraham in Genesis 17 as a sign of the covenant that he will be excuse me, made into a great nation and prosper. Well, a sign has been taken and simply used by the Pharisees. They've made all these exceptions. One of these exceptions has to do with circumcision. See, they had a hierarchy of precedence. Some things were more important to do. You can bend the rules to do that because it meets this qualification. D.A. Carson said, the Jewish thinkers about his time argued that necessary, excuse me, any necessary act of mercy could be lawfully performed on the Sabbath. And circumcision was viewed as a perfecting rite where one member of the body is made whole. And it had to be perfected on the eighth day. How much more than must an act be undertaken even on the Sabbath if it perfects the body? In other words, saves a life, makes someone whole. And Jesus fulfills this. In the same way that he makes the lame man whole at the pool after 38 years is the exact same way that the Pharisees are trying to pin him against the wall with. 
He's in fact fulfilling the nature of circumcision, making one whole on the Sabbath. He is doing perfectly what the Jews have been doing imperfectly. He lays bare their hypocrisy. Against God himself, his law, they're taking it and circumcising men on the Sabbath, doing work so that the Sabbath won't be broken. But in fact, they fulfill one law in breaking another law. You see the double standard. They're using one to paint themselves to be the greatest of teachers, grow their followings, but they're using the same measuring rod to try to beat Jesus down with it. And he points it out. He's telling them. He tells them this isn't this isn't how you go about it. And he tells them are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? You make a whole fuss about circumcising on the eighth day so that the Sabbath won't be broken. But you're plotting to kill me because I made a man whole and complete on the Sabbath. Where is this hate coming from? Where does this desire to kill Jesus come from? stems from their unbelief. If you don't believe the true things about Christ, about his deity, his messianic identity, his full humanity, you start to misunderstand the things that he teaches and does. The Jews missed completely missed it because they thought they had it right. Hypocrisy, pride, unbelief has completely blinded them. And yet, it's exactly for them that Jesus came for this purpose to remove the blinders from our eyes, to bring us out of the kingdom of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's the whole point of why he came. But John tells us another reason. Further back in 7, he says, verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it does hate me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Genuine faith in Christ means that the testimony of Jesus and the world is true. The world is evil. Its deeds are evil. But in Christ, we've been made new. We've been transformed from the inside out. Our hearts have been renewed, regenerated. The heart of stone is melted away and given a heart of flesh. And all of these things because of who Christ is. What he says about the world is true and what he says about the believer is also true. But there is no in-between. His brothers simply don't believe in him. The Jews hate him. And the crowds are fences. They're wavering back and forth. He's good. No, he's a deceiver. No. 
John writes to us to tell us that he is neither of those things. He's not just a good teacher. There are plenty of good teachers out there. I can name a handful. But a good teacher cannot rescue you from your sin. A good teacher cannot melt away your heart of stone. He cannot deliver you from the judgment of sin. And a deceiver will simply take advantage of you. There are many deceivers out there. They claim to hold the same Bible, but yet they're willing to fleece the flock to take advantage for their own selfish gain. The more followers they get, the more money they get, the more books they publish, the more money they get. It's all about their self-image. So he's not a deceiver. Because the Lord knows his sheep. He doesn't abuse them. He feeds them. He tends to them. He binds their wounds. Friends, you can be a sheep in the fold of God. You can follow Jesus so long as your faith is in him. Not as a good teacher. Not as an astonishing rabbi. Your faith must be in Jesus, the Messiah the Holy One of God, in whom the words of eternal life come from. That is who Jesus is. Jesus is not simply the one to give you career advice. Not simply the one that's going to deceive you and abandon you and leave you with nothing. Friends, you are given so much more with Christ. This narrative in John 7, why does John put this here? So that you might believe. And that by believing you might have life in his name. A good teacher cannot give you eternal life. And a deceiver will steal yours. Jesus is none of these things. Like the man with the pool of Bethesda, he is the one who makes you whole. He is your healer. He came so that he might be broken, so that you might be mended. That he might die so that you might live, and that by his resurrection, we might also have life eternally with him. This is the great and rich reward to be found for those who have faith in Christ. And as Romans tells us, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's right here. It's revealed. Who the Messiah is, his mission, his purpose, who he's come for. It's you and I. We were the ones, if you're a believer, who needed rescue. Desperate, so desperate for rescue, we would happily pursue a deceiver. We would happily follow a good teacher. Because the good teacher tells us what we want to hear. And so does the deceiver. But one just is a dead end. Another just leaves you dead in the end. Friends, we're left with a choice here. If you're a believer in Christ, your eternity is secure. Your path is set. Your destiny lies with Christ. There's no one else. Jesus is revealed to those who seek God's glory by faith. Faith leads to a right view of Jesus. And a right view of Jesus leads to life in his name. 
Friends, do we have a right view of Jesus? Have we made the mistake of seeing him as simply the figure to which we sing on on Sundays? Forget about on Mondays. And only run back to him when we fall short. Are we afraid because he's a vindictive father who we're afraid to bring our cares and concerns to? Are we like ancient Israel who sees his mighty deeds, sees the pillar of fire and cloud, sees the manna, the quail, the water from the rock, all of his provision, do we see it? And do we say it's not enough? It's our pride that has to be broken apart. Yes, God can melt the heart of stone. But sometimes he knows the best way is to break it apart so that he can renew it. Friends, don't be the one who out of pride rejects and does not place belief in Christ. Because he will either gently melt your heart with his glory and with his love and the abundance of his mercy and compassion. He may also choose to break it. It's a mercy for him to reveal his word to us because there's no other place in which life is found. He begins with it in the end of chapter 6 and ends with it. Life happens in the name of Christ. But following Christ isn't simply going up to church and sitting where you're sitting. It's not simply attending midweek Bible study, although we should. It's not simply praying, although we should. It's not any single one of these spiritual practices and disciplines. It is because of his life, his death, his resurrection, his perfect obedience to God's will, that he is worthy of all these things. When his brothers didn't believe in him, he was still God's true and faithful servant. When the crowds couldn't decide who he is, Jesus knows from whom he is sent. And as the Jews are persecuting him, seeking to kill him, he sees that as the means by which he attains our salvation. Our atonement is complete in him. Friends, recognize who Jesus claims to be. Recognize that he is the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. That life is found in his name and in his name alone. The question today is, will you place your faith in him today? Will you trust in him, his righteousness, his perfect obedience to God, to satisfy the requirements of the law? Or instead, will you rest your eternity in your own hands? He has paid the price for our hypocrisy, yours and mine. He's forgiven those who place his faith and trust in him. For your sins and trespasses are why he was nailed to the cross. Why his blood was poured out. This was the plan. But a plan is not without purpose. And the purpose is that our sins might be forgiven, our hearts and bodies made whole, and that eternity for us is spent in his presence and not apart from him. He loves you.
He endured the punishment that you and I ought to bear. The defeat of death in the grave has been achieved. The question now is, what is your verdict? Who do you believe him to be? Let's pray. Our Father, your word is living and powerful sharper than any double-edged sword. It can judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord, you know our thoughts, you know our deeds, every act of unrighteousness. And yet, in your mercy and compassion, in your steadfast love, you have made a way for us. You've not left us to wallow in our sin without hope or remedy. You made a way in Christ. You made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, you are worthy to be praised. And I would ask, Lord, that any here who have not decided, who have not come to the verdict of your true identity, may your word awaken. May it revive their hearts. For those of us who believe, you challenge us to diligently seek your will, to follow after you without hesitation. May we continue to grow in the life that is only found in you. We love you, Jesus. We sing to you this morning because you are worthy. And we ask this all in your holy name.